This, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebranded Safety. This week is long awaited, actually, because we got quite a lot of comments when we did the post after a recording, and it was such a long time ago. We're going to talk about loads of stuff, literally loads of stuff, and then so much quality towards the end that we did a part two. So this is part one of our conversation with, let's jump into the intro, and I'll let you know. I'll let you know. So who do you think I am? Let's roll the intro. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviours. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing the stereotype. Brought to you by Risk What's up, peeps? Welcome back to Rebranded Safety. Rebranded Safety is a YouTube channel and podcast doing exactly what it says on the team. We change the perception of health and safety, and we do that right here on the YouTube and podcast. So, what's going on? What's diddling? I hope you're all well. Nice to see you back. Thank you very much. Let's talk about today's episode. So, today's episode is a lovely lady, and when I say lovely lady, probably doesn't really do it justice, actually. Such a lovely lady, Helen Heenan. You might be like, who's that? You might be like, oh yeah, Helen, she is lovely. If you don't know who it is, and you're like, who's that? You're missing a trick. This lady is lovely. Honestly, so lovely. I met her at the Paradigm Human Performance webinars, actually. We connected through there. And um, that actually brings me on very nicely to our sponsors. And then I'll tell you some more about Helen. So, quick word from our sponsor is Paradigm Human Performance, but more specifically, the HSE subscription service. Paradigm Human Performance HSE subscription service is the perfect solution for those small, medium-sized enterprises, those kind of people that are running everything and they're spinning all the plates, juggling all the balls, and they're kind of like, safety, like, I mean, it means something to me, but like, I'm just so busy, it's not really conscious, just kind of something we do, and we're kind of safe by luck, not by design. That sounds like you. This is the perfect option for you. If you're thinking, maybe I should look into this, maybe I should get some more support, Paradigm Human Performances, HSE subscription service enters the room. It's such a perfect solution. Why do I think it's a perfect solution? Well, because of who Paradigm are, they're human organizational performance experts, then this is kind of like the safety system, the compliance system that doesn't need decluttering 10 years down the line. It doesn't need that kind of, oh, let's look at this to get worker safety at the heart of what we do or the DNA of what we do. Let's let's re-look at this to make sure that we're listening to our workers, make sure we're we're understanding their their experience, their subject matter expertise of day-to-day work. It's already there. It's already kind of woven in throughout that whole structure and framework. It gets so much there, starting from £99 a month, depending on the size of your organization. And you can get all the support you need 
in addition to like an upfront kind of onboarding process. So loads to think about, loads to do. And, you know, Paradigm for me, they they 100% line up with what we're trying to achieve here. They're trying to just educate millions of people around the world. And, and they do that through so much stuff. So if you're really not sure about this, you can go check out their webinar, which is where I met Helen, today's guest. Their webinar, the Learning Organization webinar, is more of your hop stuff, it's not so much the HSE bits, but they do have, um, you know, just a wide array of guests. You know, my boss from the Glass and Glazing Federation was on there the other day um, talking about operational kind of stuff. So it's so much to learn. And you get to see the whole team, or give or take, a lot of the team on there. You'll be able to meet Teresa, the founder, and Shane Bush, the other new director as well. And, and you'll get to get to know that team before you kind of go, actually, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go for this subscription service. So if you're not quite sure, go check out the webinar. If you're sure, check out Paradigm. Honestly, if you're looking for some support, Paradigm Human Performance, is the way to go. I love Teresa. I love what she's doing. I love that company and they really do know what they're talking about. So go check them out. Website in the description below, phone number in the description below, email in the description below, everything you need, description below. Let's talk about today's guest then. So Helen Helen is a pilot, long and short, but then she's not a pilot anymore, unfortunately, which we'll talk about in today's conversation. Now, at the end of today's conversation, I do kind of jovially say, and I do mean it tongue in cheek, that we've wasted time talking about Helen's uh, kind of experiences through COVID and and the business going bust. And obviously, I don't mean wasted my time. I was more just kind of saying, wow, wow, this stuff about training and creating a psychologically safe room has blown my mind so blown my mind so much. I was kind of gutted that I didn't have another two hours to kind of talk about that. There's still quite a lot of content in here about that stuff, but like I knew there was so much more. So we invited Helen back for part two. So this is part one of my chat with Helen Heenan. And before we jump into that, just one last message from my company, Project Miletium, because I think it will really help pretty much all of our listeners. If you're a health and safety professional that's maybe at a bit of a plateau within your career, you're looking to make that next step, or maybe you're fresh off the boat, you're brand new, you're looking to get into safety, or you've literally just dipped your toe into safety, or maybe you're kind of really, really experienced and mentoring's really just not cutting it. Being a mentor's just not cutting it. You want to, you want to, you want to, hit more people. You want to spread your experience to more people and help more people, but you also want to learn from those young and new new professionals as well. Project Miletium is the mastermind community for health and safety professionals and risk professionals and operational professionals that are managing health, safety, and risk as well. Honestly, it is awesome. Join us. Let me know. You can get for free. You can get a, a call for free. But you join us and you come on to our community call. You come on to our, our month quarterly. Get your words out, James. I'm easy for you to say. Put my teeth back in. There we go. Let's start again. Message me. You can get a call for free. Of those calls we run weekly, quarterly. Weekly quarterly. What is wrong with me today? It's like seven in the morning. Um, I'm, I don't know what's wrong with me. Right. 
come on, James, you're talking about your own company. You should really be able to nail this. Right. We do weekly community calls. Bang. That's where we talk about your week. We talk about your challenges and we either get heavy into a subject or somebody can go, I need some support. I want to talk about this. I've got this problem. Can anybody help me? which normally tend to be the best conversations. It is such a psychologically safe environment with such an amazing community that's growing fast and people are just loving it. It's it's really the only space our members are telling us that they can come, they can be open, they can be honest and really get support and not feel like they're being judged and just grow and grow and grow. And that's what it's all about. And then we run a monthly book club as well. And then we run a quarterly wagon wheel. What's a wagon wheel? Wagon wheel is like a mastermind event, basically. It's three and a half hours solid on a Saturday morning, once a quarter. We have a speaker, then we have workshops about that keynote with the speaker. So not only do you get to listen to the speaker, you then get to jump into workshops digitally with that speaker and really work through their their lessons and how you're going to put that into practice on Monday. Then one of our members, and that could be you if you join, will get onto the digital platform, the digital stage. They will present a story, their story. Then they will finish with a challenge that they want some help with and the community will help them. So you're trying to pass a qualification. You're trying to engage leaders. You're not really sure whether safety is a career for you. You're struggling with something. This is an opportunity to, in a safe space, get loads of support, loads of support. Then we finish with setting yourself some, working together to set yourself some goals for the next quarter. And then that's it. You can go off on your Saturday day. It's not taking up too much of your time because we start nice and fresh and early in the morning. Smash it out. Get that professional development. Get motivated for the next quarter. And boom, you're off and enjoying your Saturday. We've also got a new monthly call coming which is a philosophy call. So we'll be every month running a call talking about philosophy, asking those big questions like, what is safe? What is risk? And we can hash it out so we can all learn and develop. We're all about trying to create a better safety profession, better health and safety professionals. So ultimately we can create better workplaces. So if you're interested, you can message me straight up on LinkedIn. James McPherson. Hey, James, I want to try this call for free. You can come along. You can try a call for free. Or you can hit up Colin Nottage, who's the co-founder with me. Or you can email both of us at me at projectbelieving.com. I'll put all the details in the description below. But without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Helen Heenan. Hello, Helen. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hello. Do you want to give us a little introduction to yourself? And then we'll, we'll, we'll get into the world of Helen Heenan. Yeah, so hi, uh, I'm Helen. Uh, up until the 5th of March last year, uh, I was an airline pilot with the regional airline Flybe. Uh, I've been in the company since May 1999, so I'd done just over 20 years, um, and I was a captain on the Q400, uh, which is a, tur- a 78 seat turboprop, uh, tends to operate most of our sort of domestic network, really. Um, but yeah, absolutely loved it. And in addition to that, I used to head up the human factors training department at Flybe as well. So looking at all the human factors training that's required, um, both from a regulatory perspective, but also from the company side uh, for all the pilots and all the cabin crew as well. So in excess of 1700 aircrew, we used to train up in the human factors side of this, as well as flying the airplanes around the network. Mm. That's fascinating. There's so much I'm going to want to talk about. Hopefully, we get it all in. And and, and I'm thinking 
Oh, just, just so, did you always want to be a pilot? Uh, no, actually. Okay. However, I always wanted to fly. Now, the reason I say no is because um, at the point that I was kind of sort of thinking, what do I want to do with my life? Um, I was, we're talking like mid 80s here. Mm-hmm. And historically, you know, even the mid 80s, it was very much that, you know, the, the, the men flew the planes and the females were the cabin crew down the back. And so I would say up until the age of 12, uh, I wanted to be an air hostess because okay. that's the way I could fly. And that's what the girls did. That was the girls job back in the mid 80s. Uh, I have just realised I just, just kind of told you how old I am as well by the fact that I was 12 in the mid 80s. We'll, we'll just brush <laughs> over that. We'll brush over that. Um, but the, the turning point, I think, was when I was 12 and um, it was my mum. You were actually. 12 in 2015. Yeah, 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 that's it. Yeah, I got, I got um, you back. And my mum said to me, she said, Helen, you do realise that, you know, if you're cabin crew and somebody's sick, you're going to have to clear it up. And yeah. I went, oh, oh, yeah. maybe I'll be a pilot instead. And so she kind of rolled her eyes and went, oh, OK. And I suppose that was probably it. I suppose, I mean, wow. <laughs> probably from the age of 12, I decided that, yeah, I wanted to be an airline pilot. And I probably drove all my teachers mad at school. Um, I went to a very academic school, uh, an all-girls school uh, in the Channel Island, Rick Ladies College in Guernsey, um, yeah. fairly academic school. And all I talked about was aeroplanes. All I wanted to do was fly an aeroplane. Um, my, oh. my, my school hymn book's got an aer- a picture of a Boeing 747 plastered across it, you know, and I used to just sit there in <laughs> assembly. Of, of course, I was listening, you know, to the assembly, but actually I Obviously. was looking at this Boeing 747 and thinking, oh, one day... <laughs> Most people were like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of a band in the 80s now, but most people were what, going oh, over, I don't know. Like Wham. Wham, yeah. I didn't want to say wham. wham. I thought if I said Wham, is that before the 80s? I'm terrible with time. No, I think Wham was around when I was in the Girl Guides. Yeah, I think I remember that, yeah. But that wasn't really my thing. I just wanted to be an airline pilot. I genuinely think that is the best story of how somebody picked a career ever. <laughs> Mum said I would have had to clean up sick, and I was like... I'll just be a pilot then like that is great I love that it was and you know what from that moment I mean I bless her my mum you know she uh so I lived in the Channel Islands I was born in Guernsey born and bred and um you know the weekends there's um there was a there's a car park like opposite the the main passenger terminal uh, uh that people could just go and sit and watch the planes so yeah on a Sunday afternoon mum would quite happily take me up to the airport and she'd sat there and read her book and I'd sit there and watch the planes that was it that was so my you are 100 percent certified a plane geek like 100 percent. oh like, massive yeah. but interestingly enough you know i had some friends who uh were looking to go down the military route um i've got a very good friend of mine actually who i met in the scouts uh who is now very very senior up in the military he was a fast jet pilot gone to any wow. sort of like wing wing commander or even group captain level i think um entirely sure <laughs> uh, and another colleague of mine who was then very much going down the military line but you know what? it just it just didn't interest me I mean there's the whole eyesight thing going on which I knew I couldn't fly for the military but even that aside it wasn't because I couldn't it's because I didn't really want to you know I used to love the um the the glamour the dream I suppose of flying you know passenger jets and and civil airliners you know yeah. that was that was my dream yeah like it is a bit suave isn't it there's like a that the you know the pilot the, that image of like the I don't know Virgin Atlantic advert the pilot walking through and all of that like yeah I get and you, you there's that video there's that film isn't there Catch Me If You Can where you've got yes. Leo you know, 
strutting through the terminal, you know, with yeah. his, you know, trail of adoring public behind him, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I suppose there probably was a little bit about that. I suppose I, you know, I did see it as kind of like a, a glamorous thing, I suppose. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think it was just one of those, you, you, the thing is with aviation um, is that it's not the sort of job that you just fall into. Uh, anybody who becomes a pilot or cabin crew it's kind of in their blood yeah. it's almost like a vocation you know you just you just you live it you breathe it um and in and then on the flip you know for the flip side of that it's actually a lovely industry to work in because okay. you're never working with people who are just there until they can find something better to do just a job you don't get that because of the commitment the passion the drive you know to be there everybody who you work with wants to be there, loves what they do, you know, lives it, breathes it, you know, is, is just immersed in the industry. So it actually makes, I think, probably, probably quite a unique working environment as well. Like I said, you don't get people who are just doing it for now until they can find something else. Yeah, yeah. What was, uh, if you don't want to talk about this and that's fine, tell me, tell me to shut up. What, what was it, <laughs> what was it like trying to be a female pilot? Was that, like you said, you said, you know, quite early on it was, you know you wanted to be an air hostess because that's what that's what the women do like mm. i don't think I, I mean correct me if i'm wrong i feel like it's, it's better than that now i feel like i'm starting to see you know just from the, my connections there, there is a lot more female pilots out there than what there was when i was younger but but like even i mean it must be a large majority of pilots are still male surely but but what was it like that was it difficult was you were you kind of like was it like i want to be a pilot where people like helen come on come on <laughs> look at your gender <laughs> yeah shouldn't um, you be in the kitchen kind of stuff like do you know what i mean it, it pains me to say that but like was was it that bad or was it not that bad or I think you could probably speak to her husband and say, yeah, but you haven't seen how bad my cooking is. So trust me, <laughs> me, being, me being a pilot is the lesser of two evils, I think, frankly. The, um, <laughs> but, uh, well, it's interesting. I get that asked a lot, actually, you know, what's okay. it like being a male pilot? Well, the truth yeah. is I've never been a man. So I don't love really know that. any different. I love that. Truth. What a great response. What <laughs> a great, I don't know. I've never I been know. a man before. Nothing to compare to. That's the best <laughs> response just... ever. I wasn't expecting that. Well played. Well, I don't know was it any different um i don't know it's, it's an interesting there's a lot of talk at the moment about women in aviation um i there's been a huge campaign you know prior to covid you know when we had there was you know actually an aviation industry and um there was a lot there's a lot of talk about you know getting more uh, equality you know we need more women pilots it's still very male dominated that is a fact i mean we're, we're talking approximately between five and seven percent uh, depending on you know where you are in the world what demographic and what you know uh, what culture you're in yep. uh, are female pilots that's that's Whoa. not very many let's be honest um the thing that i find difficult is this concept that we need more women pilots okay, and I, I question the need now if people want more women pilots because they bring something different because they want to have more diversity because they want to bring something you know different to the flight deck i can accept that the bit that i find offensive is this word need what we need is competent people to fly those airplanes that that is what the industry needs people who can demonstrate the competence the um the capability the aptitude to operate that aircraft safely so that is what the industry needs now if the industry wants to attract more females and have a more balanced demographic shall we say then 
actually we need to then identify answer the question that why why don't we mm. now okay if we go back to the 80s when i was you know little 12 year old dreaming about you know what i could do to fly mm. then yes there was definitely a perception that, that men flew the planes and women did the other bits which mm. that was then i don't believe now that the issue about women aviation is because women don't think that they can i just think it's because want. maybe they just don't want to yeah. and so <laughs> You, know. you don't want to lose as well that thing that you said earlier about most people that are in aviation love it and they they want yeah. so you don't want to lose that you don't want to be like not not the not that people would force women into the role but like you don't want to try and incentivize it too much that people just are there because it's just a good job like i suppose you want people like you that have from such a young age go that that that's what i will do i want to fly um and 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 that passion, I suppose, that must help the management, especially from a safety point of view. Like you're so mm. passionate about it, it helps all the, the the crappy, boring stuff that would come with any job. You know, passion always helps you, like listen yeah. and engage and do you know look over the admin and stuff like that. So you don't want to lose that either, do you? No, and I I think the other thing, I mean, yeah, you do have that passion, but and like you say, you don't want people that are being forced into it just because you know, they want to sort of like tick a few equality boxes. Mm. Um, but the other thing we have to look at as well, and this is the thing that certainly myself and a few of my, you know, female pilot colleagues struggle with, um, is that you need to take it from the perception of our customers as well, from our passengers. You know, you have got people that we are, you know, effectively we're putting them into a pressurized aluminium tube and we're hurtling through them, hurtling them through the air at, you know, hundreds of miles an hour, several hundred feet, several thousand feet above the Earth's surface. And we've surrounded mm-hmm. them by flammable liquid as well, you know. Oh, when you say it like that, <laughs> well, I'm never going you know, to holiday again. Well, do you know, you're, well, this is it, you know, when you think, when you thought about the granular detail. Yeah. Now, as an airline captain, you know, as the legal commander of that aircraft, I want my passengers to be confident that I'm in that role yeah, yeah. because of my ability, because of my yeah. aptitude, because I've demonstrated the necessary capability uh, and competence and um, uh, qualification to have that role. And not just because they want to tick an equality box. Yeah. Like you don't want to be, like you don't want to be a passenger and someone just like, Oh, you know what, why were you a pilot, Mr. Mr. Or Mrs. Pilot flying my plane? Like, Oh, because it pays well. Like you don't want to hear that, do you? Do you know what I mean? You want to hear? I, you want to hear because I love it. I love oh. you know, flying. I love this. I love being able to look after you all whilst you're in the air, get you somewhere safely. Like that's what I want to hear. I don't want to hear. Well, because they were the bursary and it was really cheap to get to university and blah blah blah. Oh yeah, and somebody somebody said they wanted more women, so I thought I'd give it a go and see how I see how it go on. Yeah, yeah. You, don't, you don't want to hear that, do you? You want people, but you know it's interesting. Um, we look at it from that perspective, though, actually, and I I think that ironically, the campaign to get more women in aviation is likely to damage the image of women in aviation for the reasons that I said. You know, because you know, are those are you know, there's there's a few airlines um, who we could you know search the news articles for who have actively you know advertised and campaigned that they're going to have more women doing this and more women doing that and you think well Mm. surely in a safety critical you know high reliability high reliability organization you want the people that are the best for the job surely Mm. and so i think you know to answer your question i think ironically despite the objective gender difference 
demographic you know if we look at the actual the hard numbers the percentages yes it is a very male dominated industry however i would also say that it is an industry of huge equality because you don't get any special treatment for being a girl likewise you don't get any hindrance either you know mm. your your job is to achieve certain performance standards and nobody actually cares who you are got lipstick on um and you know what your chromosome demog- what your chromosome makeup is okay mm. you rock up with the right aptitude the right attitude, attitude as yeah. well knowledge yeah. skills you either get a job or you don't you don't get it because of your gender so ironically it's a very very it's an industry of great equality even though on the outside at a superficial level it looks yeah, like it's very unequal it's a very unequal um, industry but it isn't it's really not and I I genuinely put my hand on my heart and say that I have not been inhibited is that the right word or any, in any way yeah. because I'm girl wow. nothing yeah. at all and you know if I haven't got a job it's because I'm not the right person not because I'm a girl does that make sense yeah yeah no I get that no I love that Helen I think there's a lot of I don't know. I, I look at this stuff completely different now because I've got a daughter. I've never had a daughter before. <laughs> so, you know, I never, as much as I, I, I'm intrigued by it all. I think, I think, you know, my profession, you know, I've been a safety professional for a fair chunk of years now and, and we are distinctly lacking um, any form of diversity. Like we, mm. we, white women is probably a little bit better, but then you, you know, you've got ethnic minorities, you know, there's so much more. And, and I kind of, I agree with everything you've just said. I think that works for your industry. I wonder whether that approach works for every industry. Like, I, I think in my profession, we do actually need diversity. And, and I don't say need from a point of view of uh, we need to tick the box and look good, uh, look to be diverse. I say it from a cognitive diversity point of view. Like, yep. we need different uh diverse opinions and the way we do that is by getting diverse people um that's the way i kind of look at it from my profession but at the same time you've got so you've got so many good points because i don't want somebody in my profession that doesn't love it like i do like i love my job i wouldn't do this on a friggin saturday before the six nations if if i didn't do you know what i mean like, <laughs> I, 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 Sorry. I no, it's fine. I've got a very strict schedule today, but it's, <laughs> uh, I'm finishing this and jumping in the car, walking the dog, getting over to, uh, we've got like a support bubble with our father-in-law. He's not very, not very well. So we're going to like look uh, after him today. Um, and, um, and, and I said, look, I'll come and help you, but I, I'm, I need to have the rugby on. I'm sorry. Like, you know, your dad can be ill, but rugby lives on. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And yeah, priorities. Yeah. Our priorities right yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like, I'm sorry, your dad's here, but rugby is is up here. Like mm-hmm. that makes yeah. me sound really horrible. That's 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 not true. But they did say that I could watch rugby. So that will be on there. But yeah, anyway, it's um it's it's when you look at it like I, I do think that we need to we need that passion 100 percent and and the other stuff maybe shouldn't dilute that. I don't know, there's a to political minefield, which is making me think, let's move away from this point now. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, interesting. Just to finish it off, you know, I, I've had many a heated discussion with um, other pilots and you know people about this whole need for women, more women in aviation, and like, I've, I've just been blunt. I said, well, why do we need them? 
Mm. You know, if you if you want them, I can accept that. I said that before, you know, but why do you need them? Well, you know, because they bring something different. They have a different approach. They have different, like you say, a bit more diversity. I said, so actually what you need is to recruit people who bring diversity. So therefore we need to maybe adjust our recruitments, you know, because if you're looking for people who perhaps have got, um, and I'm going to just bring up some very sort of gender stereotypical um, qualities here. If you're looking for people who have got a high level of emotional intelligence, for example, or looking for people who have got, um, can show more empathy, then actually you need to recruit those people not just because women bring that actually if that's what you need then you just change your recruitment criteria to, to, to measure that skill yeah yeah not not exactly go, you know if women are normally your, good. yeah go on carry on carry on sorry um if you're going you know if your recruitment criteria are that you have to evidence you know excellent technical knowledge and you know an ability to work under pressure an excellent spatial uh, awareness and and you know if i if i again if i use the broad gender stereotypes here yeah. of male skills yeah. then guess what <laughs> the majority yeah. of the people you recruit are probably going to be in that demographic yeah. Yeah. whereas actually if you're looking to recruit people who uh who bring something different who, who you who there is a gap in the skill set then you know what it will naturally sort itself out mm. i think I also think like like the point I was going to say before I tied myself in knots a minute ago, <laughs> um, like I look at it a bit different with, with my daughter now, because one day I think one day she will ask me, say, oh, daddy, what, what, what can I be? And, and my answer will genuinely be you can be absolutely anything you want to be like a lot of. I remember when we we didn't find out the gender of of, uh, of Maggie until she was obviously mm-hmm. born uh, and everyone said, oh, what do you want, a boy or a girl? And. And, it, and I used to say, I genuinely don't, don't care. Like as long as they're healthy. And I know everybody says that um, as long as they're healthy, but I, I genuinely didn't care because like, would I love a little boy that would, of course I would. Would I love my child to be a professional rugby player? 100% I would, but women can do that as well. Like the women's football, the women's rugby is just as popular now. It's you know, or mm. getting better at least. It could be so much more popular. But you know, women's rugby especially is getting huge traction. You know, you've got you've got women referees now. You've got women uh, pundits. You've got women playing. And I was even having a conversation on Facebook the other day, which granted the responses I got weren't what I was after. But you know, we were talking about improving women's rugby and stuff like that. And I said, look. I remember when I used to go to the gym and um, there was a woman in the gym that scared the shit out of me because no matter, no matter how fast I run on the treadmill, she was running faster. No matter how no. many weights I lifted, she was lifting more and heavier and heavier. Oh like she was a beast. She was an absolute beast. And now I play. Did you tell her that? <laughs> no. I, I, I used to talk to her quite a lot and I never called her a beast, but she, no. she, she was, she was just an absolute monster. She's so much like motivated. And I know, I know what people are thinking like that. Like, oh, she's just real muscly. Like she wasn't like, she was so she, that typical, like she, she wasn't like this steroid kind of woman stereotype that we imagine when we go gym woman lifts a lot of weights. Everyone thinks that she's, hmm not doesn't look like a woman like she was just just fucking awesomely strong and awesomely fast and 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 i remember saying in, uh, anyway i got to my point and we said in this this facebook figure and i and i described this lady and i said i'm not being funny but i would pick her in a mixed a 
a mixed gender rugby team. There are women now that are just as strong, just as fast as some of the men. Why can't men and women play rugby together? What's the difference? A woman's not going to hit any harder or any lighter than a man because they're all going to have the same level of professional support, the same level of gyms, the same level of nutritional support, the whole thing. Now, biologically, someone would say, yeah, they're different, but I'm like, really? Like if they're, if they've got all of that, that weightlifting support, fitness support, like, are they really that different? I don't know. But anyway, so yeah. that that's and, and you think of the, the, the players that need to be, you know, small, light and fast, then. Well, that, that's know. exactly how we sell rugby. That's like, we literally mm-hmm. sell rugby to say it is a sport for anyone. Cause you've got your big boys yeah. at the front and you've got your skinny, fast, you know, absolute rabbits of, of, of runners in the backs. And, and granted, now it's becoming a bit more consistent across it that they're all just muscly monsters. Um, but you still do have that distinction. You know, scrum halves are, are normally smaller, quicker. You know, fly back, yeah. uh, fullbacks are normally a little bit chunkier, but they're, they're quick, they're light on their feet. But there is such a diverse range of yeah. males in a, in, a, in a rugby team that why couldn't you have a mixed gender team? Like, I genuinely want a a really prominent person in rugby to ask that question, because I think I think it would be hard to I think it'd be hard to argue against. So for me, when I when I when my daughter asked me that question one day and she will like, you know, for me, it's different because she can go on the Internet and she can see female pilots. She can see female soldiers. She can see female firefighters, all those stereotypical Mm. male roles. She can see all of them. So she gets to, I think it's Michelle Obama was saying that you know you you need to be able to see what you yeah. want to become, and and yes. I think and I think yeah. that's true, and I think now it's different because my daughter will be able to see people like yourself that have become pilots, and I'll be able to point her towards people like you. So you want to be a pilot? Look at Helen, you'd be a pilot, and she did it when everyone was everyone expected you to be in the kitchen. So you can do it now because the world's a bit of a better place. Um, well, like anyway. then they saw me in the kitchen and decided it was probably the lesser of two evils. Frankly, <laughs> yeah. you know, is, is it funny enough? I had you know in, in the various conversations I have, you know, so if if we sort of look at the aviation side of it, you know, in terms of you know, can you be the the biggest barrier to diversity um, in aviation from the pilot side of things? I would say is uh, actually financial, because okay. you know there are no sponsorships schemes out there at the moment none of the airlines are offering you know paid funding and you know frankly if you decided today that yep do you know what i'm going to go and be a commercial airline piling upwards of eighty five thousand pounds for your training so actually it's more of a class issue than it is a than it is a gender issue more of a class massively issue. massively and i would say that is more of a barrier to diversity than it's um than gender personally because oh, yeah. you know that that is the reality of it you know and I I was fortunate enough um during my time at Flybe to attend you know promotional events um for aspiring pilots so for people you know in the sixth form who were looking at a career in aviation and looking at their options for training um but also people that you know were almost halfway through their training and looking at the job the job market um and you know I I, I really felt for them because you you had people there who lived and breathed aviation you know they 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 did what i did at the age of 12 and just dreamed about being an airline pilot and taking this you know shiny airliner at the end of a runway and taking off and going above the clouds and just Mm. being up there in that 
you know, that little bubble of solitude. Um, but, you know, who's got £85,000 to risk? And it's a massive risk because it's not like an asset. I mean, you could spend £85,000 on a car, I mean, a pretty nice car, granted, but nevertheless. But, you know, six months later, if you decided that, oh, heavens above, there's been another financial crisis and I need to get some money, you could sell that car. And okay, you might not get eighty-five thousand pounds back for it, obviously, but chunk, you know, yeah. you, it's still a thing. It is an asset that you have bought, and therefore you can then sell and realise, you know, the capital within that asset. But with a pilot's license, you're you're buying a product, really. You're you know, you're buying a service in terms of that you're learning to fly. And so, when you come out of it at the end of your, you know, 15, 18, 24 months of training, and you get your little book in your hand, and it's cost you eighty-five, a hundred thousand pounds to get. You can't go and sell it you know you've still got yeah. that debt for you know life really yeah. as long as it takes to pay it off so you know yeah. unless you've got a very sympathetic bank manager or uh things and i hear of people that remortgaged houses for it you know parents have remortgaged their properties to fund their their child's training um you know and i would say that was a that's a massive barrier to diversity within the industry because you've got people there who have got the ability, the aptitude, the competence, and more important, the passion, but can't get into it because they just don't have a hundred thousand pounds lying around. Wow. I had, I interviewed a lady the other day. She, uh, she works in, in like, uh, she works it, uh, recruitment would be doing her a misjustice. She doesn't just work in recruitment. She's doing loads of stuff. Her name's Anna Keen. Um, <laughs> She did loads of stuff in the profession. <clears throat> and uh, she she said, she said like a two or three things about the profession and how we run it that um, I said to her, do you know what I need to do is I need to download a sound effect. I've got this new toy for my 30th birthday for podcasting. It's like a little mixing desk that is connected birthday. to this. Yeah. Away. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was uh, 20 years ago. It wasn't, it was like. Yeah, yeah. months ago um and it's got little buttons on it so i can press a, a noise and it would it would make a, a noise and put it in this call and i said to her i'm gonna make it a thing now on rebranding safety i'm gonna have a little applaud on there for people that say things that just leave me speechless and then i'll, I'll press that button but it's gonna be a rarity i'm not gonna i'm not gonna hit it all the time and if i'd have done it which i haven't i'd have pressed it after that that was beautifully said um oh, well. honestly you talk so beautifully about flying as well. Like you could just see the passion coming out of you. But <laughs> I think, I think that was really nice what you said there that, you know, actually we need to, well, it wasn't nice. It was horrible that we, that it is 85,000 pounds, but it's something that people need to hear. And, and I think, yeah. yeah. So thank you for that. So if I had the button, I would be pressing it, but I, I don't have it. Well, thank you. So, well done. Um, anyway. So what, like the way you talk about being a pilot then when you when you said, you know, be above the clouds and your tone of voice changed, your facial expression changed, like your, your body language was, I could just, it oozes out of you that you love flying, but you don't fly now. You're a, you're a trainer. You, you've moved mm -hmm. into this human factors space. Two, this, like, they, say, they say if you're a good interviewer, don't ask two questions, but I'm going to throw two questions at you. One, <laughs> okay. why? Why did you leave flying? Why did, if you can tell us, like, I don't know if it was personal or whatever, if it is, just tell me to shut up. And, and two, what was, that must have been a hard decision to make because I can tell how much you love it just by the way you talk about it. Uh, well, well, the first question is quite easy, actually, that it wasn't my choice. 
Okay. In all honesty. So as I said, up until last year, I used to work for Flybe. Been there 20 years. And uh, on the 5th of March last year, the company went into administration. Um, it was a shock to everybody. Uh, you know, I was, I was actually on a training course at our training academy in Exeter. Um, and we were sat, we were in a classroom on, it was on the Wednesday. So that would have been the 4th, yeah, the 4th of March, the Wednesday evening. And there was 20 of us on this course. And uh, just having a discussion about what time to come in the next day, because, you know, they had a lot to cover and people were going home on the next day. So we wanted mm-hmm. to know what should be coming early was the conversation. So that was at six o'clock. And then at eight o'clock, I remember being sat in the bar in our hotel next to the academy with a couple of friends, uh, having a beer and jacket potato. You know, <laughs> these little details stick in your mind at key events in your life. Um, and then at quarter nine, it was all over. It was literally that quick. At the first we heard about, you know, that it was there was something seriously going on uh, was actually through Sky News because there was the, the hotel have always got kind of like the news 24 channel on in the background. Yeah. And there was sort of like things about Flybe and everybody was like, oh, what's going on? And then That's if you read job. Twitter feeds on Sky, the Sky News Twitter feed and other Twitter feeds with, you know, the hashtag Flybe, then there was all this stuff going on. And, and, and we were there, you know, we were mm. in the head office, you know, thinking, what's happening? What's going what on here? Surely this is... This is a little bit too overt to be just some kind of rumour control. Mm. And then, um, yeah, it was quarter to nine and I was sat by one of my colleagues who uh, was good friends with one of the senior management team. And uh, he suddenly got a text saying, yeah, I've just been in a meeting. They're calling in the administrators tomorrow. And, you know, and it was, you know, you go through the standard kind of grieving thinking, uh, surely, really. Um, and then you kind of go through the, the, sort of the, the disbelief really so there was kind of a few people headed across to the training academy to you know just to sort of go and see what was going on and we kind of all congregated and there was sky news people outside and there was you know films of engineers wow. clearing out all their tools from the from the hangar from the maintenance side of things and Shit. people actually in the academy clearing their desks and you know one of my one of my team came up to me and said Helen do you want this and it was like all the resources that we'd been using for all our training over the last 12 months and I thought well I, I don't know I guess guess so <laughs> you know might use it again one day who knows but it was kind of really surreal um and then you know uh, there was there was a lot of us in the hotel that night because it was what we call a train the trainer course so it was the first of the sort of like the recurrent season like the new term if you like so we were kind of there was a lot of trainers there but then people from the offices then came over to the hotel but you know and it's it you know I think back to that night and it was such a weird night because there's little things that you don't, kind of don't think about at the time so the, I mean there must have been oh there must have been about 40 or 50 crew members in the hotel that night the hotel is right next door to the training academy but it's not owned by the company it's not a company hotel it's um it's a hilton a hampton by hilton hotel that the company pay for but of course you know we're all staying at the hotel and flyby were paying for the hotel so are we going to better stay can we stay in the hotel because he's going to pay the bill and then there's little like the following day um everybody was due to be going back to their bases now flyby had an enormous regional network um, and we had people that night in Exeter that were based uh, in Belfast, in Edinburgh, in Glasgow, in Aberdeen, in Manchester, Birmingham, Southampton, Cardiff, you know. And all of a sudden, you know, the logistics of getting home is now not as clear cut mm. because, um, 
oh okay so I had my own car I live in the West Midlands so I I used to drive myself to Exeter so I thought well I'm all right Jack you know so you know I had a car but there was a lot of people that were due to pick up higher cars the next day to get home now Shit. of course that's not going to happen is it because you know who's going to pay for the hire car mm-hmm. um there were people that were due to be flying back to manchester the following lunchtime on on the manchester flights you know the lunchtime manchester of course that's now not going there's also people going on the manchester flight connecting to belfast edinburgh and glasgow which of course are not going so all of a sudden you know yes there you've got this whole kind of like fear and disbelief of you know oh my goodness the company that i've just worked for for half my life in, has has just stopped um, but now we've got a lot of people that, I mean, how do you get home to Belfast from Exeter stranded, if there's no plane? Yeah. yeah. And it's not like you can get on another plane because nobody else operates that route. So, you know, you've kind of got this whole kind of, the, the hotel were fantastic. I mean, the hotel kind of like realized that this was big and the hotel manager said, look, don't worry about it. You can all stay. We will, we'll sort it out, you know, as an organization. So they, or, you know, they obviously weren't going to get paid for that night in the hotel. Uh, and they let us keep our 20% discount at the bar, actually, <laughs> which was nice. Well, you probably, you, made... if, there, if there was ever a time you needed a 20% discount at a bar, it's when you're stranded and you've lost your job. <laughs> yeah. I, I had, a, I, it, was, um, it, it, was, it was a very educational evening, actually, for me personally. I, I discovered that if I drink five whiskeys neat back to back, I have a headache the next day. That was a, you know, Helen's life hack. Don't do that. Don't no. do that. Uh, so, so you know, there was um, it's all those little those little things of it. So, to answer your first, that's a very long winded way of saying actually, do you know what? Why do I stop choice. flying? It wasn't it wasn't my choice. And then, of course, you know, this was the fifth of March last year. COVID was just starting to kind of rear its head in a serious way. And then, of course, I mean, by the end of March, you know, the industry was in tatters anyway. And you know, here we are a year later, and the industry is still nowhere near. Um, getting back on its feet at all you know so mm. you know when other airlines have collapsed when monarch collapsed when thomas cook collapsed other airlines you know kind of filled the gap um and pilots cabin crew other staff were able to kind of, you know, yeah. yeah to jump in but of course there was nowhere to go mm. um and you know and that's that's been the end the rest is history you know the last 12 months uh, particularly in aviation have been absolutely devastating absolutely devastating mm. So you, why do I stop flying up? Wasn't really my choice. Yeah. If if, if and I forgot COVID, what the other question was. Oh well, I kind of leading on to it anyway. But like, if COVID didn't happen, then do you think you'd have just got another pilot job? Do you, you would have you still be flying now? Do you think if COVID wasn't there? That's a very hard kind of hypothetical question because you you kind of probably don't even know the answer because it's impossible. Similar to your your I don't know what diversity is like because I've only ever been a woman. So. <laughs> I've never been a man. (laughs) Um, Would I have got another flying job? Um, That's a really tough question. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously it's hypothetical. Because you were on a trainer, trainer course. Were you the delegate on that course? So were you training to become a trainer anyway or... No, so um, I've been a I've been a trainer, human factors instructor since 2007 um, as one of Sorry. just a team delivering yeah. training. Then in 2016, I took over as the head of department. So I was I was responsible for the actually creation development of all the training. Um, the human factors, we call it CRM, crew resource management training is required from a regulatory perspective to be refreshed every 12 months because you have to cover the entire syllabus over a three year period. Mm-hmm. So 
every year we refresh it because we need to cover the next set of topics. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so it was my responsibility uh, as part of my job description to actually develop and write the materials. So the idea of the train the trainer course is that all the ground school trainers, so you've got your technical instructors, human factors trainers, um, security, you've got dangerous goods, you've got first aid, you've got fire training that needs to be done. Anybody who delivers any of that training over the year attends that. this one course. And it's effectively like a dress rehearsal so this is the first time that these particular materials have been run on this particular timetable. And the nice thing about having all the trainers there is that they can be quite objectively critical of it. You know, does it work? Yes or no. Will this work in this context? And, you know, I don't know if you've ever written and delivered training materials, but, you know, you sit in your office at home and you say, right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to write this. I'm going to present this and it will, all, it will happen beautifully. And then you actually stand in front of a class of people. And then at some point it comes to a grinding halt because you think, so it doesn't work does it this isn't working yeah. at all actually what we need to do is this 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 needs to go up here this needs to come before that and, yeah. and that's the opportunity to, to effectively what you say iron out the creases mm -hmm. so that's what the train the trainer course was was actually for right. um so you were already so delivering was, training were you were you still flying at that point uh, well <laughs> yes and no uh technically yes i was still flying right. uh but i suppose on a personal note i wasn't actually flying at that moment because uh i actually had my medical suspended 18 months prior to that oh. um after suffering a you know a little bit of a minor nervous breakdown um okay. and the good people of the civil aviation authority get a little bit excitable about you know mad people flying their planes so i'd had a medical suspended uh due to mm. you know, therapy and the medication i was on now the, mm. the cruel irony was that i'd got my medical reinstated in february so 12 months ago mm. and um that was actually the start of my return to work you know my return to flying training if you like so i had to i had to not only run this course but it was also then formed part of my refresher training my mandatory refresher training that i had to do um and we were in the process of booking you know technical refreshers simulator refresher oh. training my, then my license revalidation renewals um she as well to actually going back and then all that happened oh my god what a, what a shit storm there's so many stories coming out of this covid stuff like just I've just really shit timing for so many people <laughs> like I've, I know a, a gentleman that you know just was really struggling to find work and and then decided to just start his own consultancy and then like two weeks before covid and then covid just kicked off and that's it I think there's something that's um I think you know to go back to the original question if you know would I would I go for another job would I fly again um aviation as a pilot Okay, so if we talk about, you know, aviation management, board level management, that's a different, that's a different thing. But as a yeah. pilot, it's a very unique industry. Um, so quite often, if you look in, in, in other industries, you know, you kind of work yourself up a particular ladder, you get to a certain place, then you might move companies because they mm -hmm. offer you, a, you know, a better job or something like that. Now, aviation is historically run on what we call a seniority basis. So the longer that you've mm -hmm. been somewhere, then the more, uh, well, the the easier life you have i suppose time served kind of thing yeah yeah it is um you know things like part-time working applications things like your leave allocations is all done on seniority now really? if we go back to the contract that i had at flyby i'd been there for 20 years um i'd gone off you know popped out a couple of little mini heenans and come back off maternity <laughs> applied for part-time so my part-time i was a, i was a captain on the q400 i was also a ground trainer 
So I used to teach the human factor stuff in the classroom, as well as being having a training management position, I suppose, because I was the head of the, the training at that particular department. Yeah. Um, and my flying contract was a 50% contract. So I only flew like 11 days a month. And I, I only flew on Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Thursdays. Right, yeah. <laughs> I had Easter like every week. Nice. Now, now I, you know, with, with the family being the age they are, and also because I was the, I was the most senior Dash 8 captain in Birmingham. So I, I was basically the Dash 8 captain that had been there longest. Therefore, when it came to applying for leave, you know, a hol- annual holiday, I had first choice. Now, my children are of school age, so I'm restricted to school holidays. And do you know what? Actually, having weekends, I mean, that is unheard of in this industry. It is, mm. I, 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 to this day, I do not know how that part-time contract was approved. Mm. <laughs> but I've never questioned it, ever. Yeah, just don't say anything. Uh, don't say anything. No, just, just, just keep quiet. Just keep quiet. <laughs> Sh- shut, um, the fuck up. But, shut the fuck up. <laughs> well, actually, you know, I do know how it was, it was approved. Actually, because I, when I came back to flying off maternity, actually, the, the company were going through a contraction process anyway. So they were actually offering all sorts of part-time contracts. They said, yeah, take part-time, whatever. Anyway, that's an aside. Um, so I always had weekends off with the children when they were at home, not at school. And, you know, if I wanted to have February half term to go to Tenerife, um, I'm not bitter that I should be there now, by the way, um, I could have it. It wasn't a case of, well, I'll bid for it and see what I get. You know, I could guarantee it. Now, in terms of a work-life balance, that was massive. Yeah. You know, that that is a really big thing in aviation. Every weekend off and your first choice of the holidays. I mean, seriously, that that just does not happen. Now, if I go to any other airline, okay, let's say I wanted to go and fly my, you know, my jumbo jet, um uh i would have to go to ba or virgin i mean i know they don't fly them anymore right now but they did at the time yeah, yeah yeah um and i would have to go right to the bottom of the seniority list i would have to go straight no i would do full time oh yeah yeah full time flexible roster as a first officer which is fine i don't mind being a first officer by the way that's not the issue but nevertheless i'm still a is first that, officer and a full-time for, for layman's roster. is that the first officer what's that co-pilot kind of uh, yeah, sorry. So yeah, in terms of your rank, you have a captain and a, and a first officer generally on a, on a two crew flight deck. Um, so I go back into the right hand seat, which, you know, if it's a different type of operation, like long call that I've kind of made that out to be a big thing. It's really not a big thing, but it would be it would be a massive job change. But the, the issue would be the full time flexible roster. I'd have no control over my my working days, no control over my time off. I would be at the, the bottom end of the pile for any leave allocations. So I'd probably get the third week in November, you know, if I was lucky, which is useless yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't have my training positions. I wouldn't be doing any because I have their own team. Um, I wouldn't certainly have my training management role. So you're effectively, a a friend of mine put it a beautiful way, you know, you get get to a point where it's not a career move, it's a career reset. And that's the reality of it. You know, even now, if I went, if airlines started recruiting, whatever airline I went into, I would have to reset to where I was in May 1999. Wow. That's crazy. And, you know, if I'm honest with you, which might sound, I don't know, a little bit conceited I don't know I just don't know that I want to do that yeah. you know I my, my children are now I think how old they are 10 and about to be nine so you know they're at the age where actually do you know what I kind of want to spend time with them they're not they're not babies yeah. um and they're not teenagers that don't want to hang out with mommy anymore you know they're at that age where actually do you know what having weekends with mommy at home being able to go on holiday during the school holidays times Win-win. means a lot to them yeah. you know and I just don't know that right now I'm ready to reset my career right down to the bottom. 
But on the flip side of that, I'm not ready to hang my wings up either. You know, my, I never okay. had my last day. You know, I never got presented with my carriage clock and having the yeah. water fountains from the, you know, from yeah, the fire. You didn't get any was... closure kind of thing. No. Closure, have you? So I don't, I don't know. Would I, would I fly again? I don't think, if I'm honest with you, it would have to be the right job. Mm. And I hope I haven't. I hope I haven't just sparked, re-sparked this question in your head. You'll be <laughs> eating dinner later on, like, will I fly again? And, and your husband or, or and your family or whatever will be like, are you, are you all right? You, you don't seem with it today. Well, I'm just wondering if I'd fly again. And then, oh, it just becomes this whole thing. I hope I haven't just kick-started this big question in your household. <laughs> no, because do you know what? It's, it's a question I get asked a lot. You know, by people, oh my goodness, you think you're ever going to fly again? And I said, I I, I think I will. Um, What I'll fly and when I'll fly, I I can't answer that question. Whole other question, yeah. But but right now, the industry's in tatters. It needs to regenerate into something else. You know, let's give it four or five years that when the kids are, you know, old enough, teenagers, and they don't want to, you know, they're not that fussed about spending time with mummy at the weekend, you know, Mm. feeding the ducks or whatever it is that we do. and then we'll see how the industry shaken itself out and see what's out there. But right now, I don't think it's the right time. Mm. And like I said, unless, I'm not going to say never, but if the, yeah. if the right job came along, I would seriously consider it. Mm. But do you know what? Something that's happened over the last 12 months is that, you know, I've always had a passion in human factors. I mean, one of the, one of the things I loved about my job was being in the classroom. I loved being able to take, you know, some really quite complex science and research into into human factors and psychology and particularly behavioral psychology Mm -hmm. and turn it into something Um, and in particular you know some of the challenges that we faced is that you know with the with the recurrent courses is that we'd often have a session with just the pilots we could talk about piloty stuff let them let them do their pilot geeky bit and get that get that out of their system mm-hmm. but we'd also do refresher training you know with the pilots and the cabin crew together so we have it the combined training we used to call it so we used to have to develop training sessions that covered things like you know effective communication between you know uh, the flight crew and all crew members and you know shared situation away and shared information processing those sorts of things and if you sort of go into the into the science of, of that kind of stuff then you know it's really quite it is it, it, you can tie you in knots but then you have to think about the demographic of the people in front of you and you know you could have everybody anybody and everybody in that classroom ranging from you know 19 year old junior cabin crew members right through to you know um 25 year seniority senior training captains and you know what you've got to write a training material that keeps both those people interested mm. and then the next week you have a completely different set of people sometimes you might have 20 people in the room sometimes you might have six people in the room sometimes you might just have cabin crew and have no pilots at all sometimes you might have an even split of pilots in cabin crew and so you know and so what I used to love is actually trying to find ways of making it relevant to their job and keeping them interested you know and when I was in the classroom and you see people they kind of look at you like this you know and all of a sudden they have that oh yeah moment you know oh my god that was the most rewarding time ever you know particularly because you can you can you know what it's like you can tell by body language when people have no idea what you're saying um and you know sometimes I used to have a bit of fun with it as well because I'd ask a question you know who thinks this who thinks that and then you know who actually have no idea what I've just asked and hopes that if they don't make eye contact that I might not notice (laughs) 
and that used to be everybody's hands go up yeah i love that yeah and that's it you know so you could then get get them on side and so what i've identified you know having lost the sort of the flying focus is that um i've been able to kind of like channel all my energies now into looking at the the human factor side of things and in particular with reference and this is kind of where it comes into your podcast i suppose is the is the relevance of, of safety and the safety implications that we used to influence from our what we call our non-technical training so we didn't teach people how the buttons work we didn't teach, teach people how to use the fire axe or the extinguishers and didn't teach people you know what this light meant but what we used to look at is actually let's be realistic about this how do we communicate with each other mm. you know what are the barriers to communication and how are we going to overcome this what is the point of this what is the point of that you know how can we improve such and such what are the dangers here um and so channel my energies into that and it's kind of like if i'm honest with you james i kind of feel that like this is my new passion, passion. Yeah, um, I can tell. and I've, I can tell. I, I've somehow I, i'm not entirely sure how this happened actually but I, I i somehow got involved with um company called paradigm who run webinars every thursday afternoon yeah and you know well of course you know them um and <laughs> so i got introduced to paradigm and you know somehow got kind of listening into their their weekly webinars mm -hmm. and you know it's just a plethora of safety professionals who are all talking the same language mm. that we used to talk about in the classroom yeah, yeah. but you know rather than talking about you know how the cabin crew and the pilots communicate through a locked flight deck door wearing a smoke hood of some description actually they're talking about other hros the high reliability oh. i can say it high reliability <laughs> organizations you know you've got people yeah. who are working in oil and gas and you've got nuclear and it's all the same stuff and i'm suddenly thinking wow do you know what there's this whole world out there mm. that is reigniting this kind of passion inside me and that desire to you know influence people to, so that they get it you know as as you know i mean the whole human factors human performance um when we talk about hop um actually do you know what there's there's a lot of similarities in terms of the underlying science but it all it's all about you know how you then actually get that across to people and somebody was talking only last thursday actually about you know being able to translate that into something that's realistic you know mm -hmm. this is all very interesting but you know what's the point <laughs> and you know what i what i love about what i do at the moment is there being a point so when we deliver training courses and you know we incorporate things like you know workload management situation awareness um effective communication skills uh information processing you know we can actually do that in a very very simple exercise to incorporate all those things and then we have a point to it you know well this is all very interesting helen but what's the point and that's kind of like my my usp if you like that's kind of what i always ask myself if i deliver any training course at all is what's the point helen <laughs> because uh, you know it's so easy to talk about theories and models and philosophies but you know if people walk out of the classroom saying well that was quite interesting but what's the point then yeah, what are we trying to achieve there's no point in it yeah exactly i think that's and something that we struggle with a lot actually like what especially with training i i love training like everything you said like the passion i can see it because it's like me in the mirror like, <laughs> I, I miss training so much like i'm desperate for in my my new job my day job to like just yeah start doing some some workshops some learning sessions and stuff like that because it would just i just love it like seeing people go through that process where they're like they come in, especially when it's the safety guy doing it you know the safety professional doing it they come in and they slouch down in the chair and oh yeah like, 
come on then, let's get this done. Because I've had an email saying we need to go on this training to be compliant and blah, blah, blah. And, I, and I've done a couple of training sessions on Zoom. It's not quite the same. Uh, no. It's like, I, I just, oh, I just used to love training. Like I used to love all the little bits I used to do to like, you know, immediately change that perception. Like if they're, if they're walking in the room, like I'd have music playing in the background. Like I'd do everything oh, yeah, I can yeah. to make it really relaxed. So, because they think they're coming into the room with some old white guy and with a shirt and a tie. And unfortunately I am white. There's nothing I can do about that, but I like to think I'm not that <laughs> old yet. Um, but like, you know, we're sitting in the room and the music playing and I'm just like, and I, I normally assess the room, but depending on who's in the room, I might drop the odd, the odd swear word to relax them a little bit more. Oh, yeah, yeah. Cause that, that seems to, you know, if you're like, well, the fucking weather's terrible, isn't it? And everyone goes, <gasps> I thought this was like a really professional training session and it, it just, it's just yeah. my little tactics of relaxing people and things like that and sometimes I don't use that it depends on who's in the room depends on the feel I get for them and, and stuff like that but I used to love that stuff and getting like you say like um, the most recent training I've done is some like technical fire safety training and, and how we take all these technical fire safety training uh, concepts, sorry, in the housing sector and the buildings of compartmentation and things like that. How do we get that and make that understandable to what yeah. a what a housing officer does every day? Somebody yeah. that just collects rent, somebody that supports clients, somebody that deals with complaints of like, you know, a great a great example is we paid in one of the buildings I used to manage. We we paid thousands of pounds to get in all new, brand new fire doors, and then two days later, Bob the joiner turned up and give everybody uh, peepholes in the door, just drilled through my brand new fire doors, compromised what? my fire doors. Now, some it, it, there's 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 it would be a fair enough argument to say actually, whilst it's not now a certified fire door, it wouldn't be that bad. But that aside, I've just brought a brand new freaking door uh, for like 34 of them or something, and you just, <laughs> just drilled, drilled a hole in every single one of them, and and trying <laughs> to explain as to why that's a problem to to somebody who they've got Sheila, you know, who's like, I want a peephole. And, and she wants a peephole. She's always had a peephole. It makes her feel safe having a peephole. She can check who's on the other side of the door before she opens it. So her, the, 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 her priority is get a peephole. The housing officer's priority is keep my customer happy. My priority is keep them safe. So how do we get all three of them to work together? Mm. And, and how do we get that? And, and just kind of doing a bit of a discovery session around that and just saying, well, where could we? Have, have done have got to that point before I maybe bought those doors and then you draw the hole in it so really was this just a customer engagement session that we missed out that we just mm -hmm. thought that we knew yeah. better than the customer and we didn't ask yeah. the customer's opinion which is no different from employee engagement which is no so like that's just one example of like just I, I love that conversation I use that example and people you know I don't give them the, the answer the same as you'll do you'll do the same in in uh, in your training it's you just put the questions out there, play devil's advocate. They come oh, yeah. up with the answers themselves. And, and I used to do so much stuff like I would play like a role play and I would be them. So I'd be like, right, you're the safety professional coming to do a fire assessment and I'm going to be you, except I'm not going to be you. I'm going to be a massive pain in the ass. I'm going to be <laughs> a typical worst person that manages a building. And I'm, because... <laughs> 
I don't know if you ever experienced this, but when you go into, when I've delivered a lot of safety training, I end up getting this thing. I call it safety training brain. Um, people seem to feel like they should demand the highest standard of safety when they're in conversations with me, because they think that's what I want. So okay. they'll be like, if I ask a question, like, I don't know, where, where should we put a fire door in this building? They'll be like every door, every door should be a fire door. And I'm like, but we don't need to be every fire door. But they think because they're in conversation with me, they're in fire safety training that I right. want that that kind of higher standard. Um, whereas I don't, I want reasonable, I want practical, I want something that's going to work and so on and so forth. Hmm. So I just do the opposite. Like, so they'll, they'll go into this thing and they're like, yeah, so we should probably have a fire door there. And I'm like, why? And they're like, well, because you know, fire doors stop. Yeah, I know why, what fire doors do, but why do we need a door there? Well, because, you know, the fire spread and I get them to use everything I've taught them over the last day or so. And and then I go, I haven't got the budget. Like, there's no way I can do that. We, we, she, Sheila complained yesterday. She needs another cooker. Um, you know, that's, that's the fifth cooker I've had to buy this year. That's all my money's gone on that. Um, my budget's mm-hmm. been cut already. I can't do it. And you could just see them in their brain going, okay yeah that actually is me Uh, like and now I start to understand like okay it's not as simple as that so then I go I'll come back to my original question why do I need that fire door and then they go well actually because people do genuinely think they need a fire door everywhere so I I used to kind of turn around and say right okay I take my customer hat off now and I put my fire engineer hat back on if I knock this wall out would you want a fire door there I said, well, no, that'd just be stupid because it'd just be a door. And I said, exactly. It's a big so door like, in the middle of it. <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, exactly. So why do I need a fire door? And you just, I just love that. Like that playing devil's advocate, that that facilitating their thinking. Like I miss it so much. Like, and, and it was, there was one thing I wanted to kind of say, like, I don't know if you've ever, it must've been an, an, a really interesting process for you to be able to do, because essentially what I'm trying to do and what you'll be trying to do in the training room is create some sense of psychological safety. We're trying to create a room where people are comfortable to say, I don't know, comfortable to challenge ideas and things like, which is really challenging. But in an industry, like you said, where seniority is a really big thing. And as you've kind of pointed out, hierarchy, hierarchy is probably quite a big aspect of that. When you've got that 19 year old, uh, air, um, crew, what did you call them? Crew, crew, oh, cabin crew. Yeah. I mean, they can be crew. pilot, but it's less likely to have a 19 year old pilot. Yeah. There. So you've got like that, that like young, really enthusiastic cabin crew, 19 year old, like bubbling, you know, and they're just like, yeah, yeah. And then you've got like this, 60 like I don't know 50 year old pilot that's been doing this years and that you know they're really intelligent they're really I'm not saying cabin crew are not intelligent but you know they're really technical maybe and it's two completely different personalities how do you create that psychological safety in that room that must have been as a trainer like in my experience that must have been really challenging in that industry especially yeah, it is actually. And, you know, it's it's one of the things that because um, one, one of the roles I do now is actually train new trainers. So I actually run a train the trainer course for people to do cool. this. And um, it, it all comes down to you, your what's the word I want, um, your success or your experience, your skill. That's probably the best word, your skill as an effective facilitator. So one of the first rules of facilitation is you ask an open question to the room and you don't dismiss anything. Yeah. The first person that speaks, you 
you don't jump on them not literally they, they, there's yeah. like rules about that but um you know you actually say yeah brilliant you know and you know particularly if i'm doing you know something if i'm wanting for ideas like have have any of you experienced such and such before um or give me an example when or what do you think of you know the open questions and um the, the first thing is to uh, I, I, oh God, i'm going to my trainer's head now so you know there's often a, a this this theory of um pose pause pounce so uh, as an instructor so people who are teaching you know instructional stuff where there is a right answer uh, you have that pose pause pounce you pose the question you pause and then you pounce on you let them have a think about it and then you pounce on somebody to give you the answer mm, yeah, now yeah, yeah. as an effective facilitator you remove the pounce just take you never pounce on anybody mm. you just pose and pause and yeah. the, the the trick here is to and i, I call it own the silence yeah comfortable because in the silence actually, yeah if you ask a question it can sometimes take people five or six seconds to process the question think of an answer and then have the courage to speak up mm-hmm. now you think well five seconds that's not very long it feels actually, like a lifetime though it is and if yeah, you actually yeah. wait five seconds yeah see even i spoke like and it's you can't my podcast. do it you I can't, can't yeah. do it and i've been that i've been that trainer that's like own the silence james own the silence and even then i did it like i just broke the silence yeah it's you can't so do it, challenging can you? No, it's so it is it's really hard and we, we practice that a lot when we do the train the trainer you know I, and the, <laughs> you end up having this and i just stand. failed and I'm, I'm apparently a trainer and i just failed like i used to um i used to go and make a coffee like if I, if i had a coffee machine in the room um which didn't always happen but sometimes i'd make a glass of water i'd ask a question and then i'd leave them i'd stand there for a couple of seconds if no one said anything i would make a coffee go back of the room and they'd all be like oh he's making a coffee maybe it's break time or something then halfway through making the coffee i go is anyone gonna answer that question he's still waiting <laughs> I, anyone i mean I'll, I'll just drink a coffee all day i would so and and then they're like, oh, and then i don't know it just seemed to i think they all thought because you're making that coffee they're like oh he's he's distracted he's going to move on so maybe i won't have to answer it but then when you go is anyone actually going to answer it? like you end up like a minute in, in silence like but because i'm making a coffee i've distracted myself like that's how i used to yeah yeah <laughs> and then somebody speaks oh yeah sorry i asked a question didn't i <laughs> yeah, what are we doing yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so yeah it's a case of um yeah you need to make people feel comfortable so you can do that and again this is kind of where the um not just the sort of a cognitive psychology but the behavioral psychology comes into it as well so again you you own that silence and you know no matter what will we say is that no matter what anybody says you always write it down. You always validate what they've said. It might not be right. In fact, they might have got completely the wrong end of the stick. But if you ask an open question and someone says, well, this, and you go, well, that's not really quite what I'm looking for, affiliated them. You know, you've, you've, you've given them the opportunity to speak. They've had the courage to speak. And then you've just shot them down in front of all mm. their peers. That person is not going to contribute again. Now, the other thing is that for the rest of the room, anybody who might have had an idea is now going to be quite hesitant to say anything. Yeah what if they're wrong as well so the first rule of facilitation is that nobody is ever wrong so as soon as you ask the open question you always write everything down you never paraphrase it because then you're removing the ownership from the class it's theirs okay this, this is what they have to say and so and it only takes a couple and then bam that's it they are all Good engaged yeah. and it's up to you as the trainer to to validate those people and val- and give them equal validation to you know the person that's done it all before and the person that hasn't done it before 
because you know then, then they're more likely to contribute and then some people say to me oh yeah but you know what about if they give like this enormous rambling answer you can't write that down I'd verbatim well no but then you get them to to bullet point it for you and you actually just look at them and say give me a, give me a clue how can I write that what do you want me to write on here that I can just write as a bullet point well, uh, well I don't know really anybody how can we bullet point that you know and give them ownership and um, the other thing that um I don't know to me this is you know something that I've just kind of learned on the job but equally yeah, quite obvious is is the is the room layout as well how yeah. you have the room set out massively influences how you'll what um participation you'll get from mm. the group and what engagement you get from the group and the um, sense, as soon as they walk in the room the sense that they get like I know my, my wife hates round tables because she said I've been at so many freaking training sessions i'm fed up of round tables like they're everywhere everyone uses round tables and i'm like there's a reason that we use round tables it's not always the right thing i think some people is it's like it's like any kind of um tool that you have um for training for teaching anything you know you need to have a spectrum of tools to know what is right for for that particular group for that particular room size for the objectives for the session that you're going to run um and again you know a, <laughs> we do this on the training course is that we actually do an entire module on room layouts oh, really? you know and we wow. actually get them laid out in different ways um and i i don't know i've just named them so i've got boardroom which is you know might be like your round table i don't know but it, like, effectively like a, a, yeah. a big table one that everybody big sits circle, around like yeah. one yeah. big one big one big table yeah um then you have cabaret which is lots of little tables um oh, depending yeah. on yeah. what you're doing um then you have the the classic you <laughs> which yep. is probably my least favorite if no i'm way. honest with you oh i hate it okay uh, why I, I I, because I, that's one of my favorites so tell me why you don't like it as a trainer yeah it's fantastic because you can see everybody and you can get to everybody but then you're taking ownership of the, uh, then you're taking ownership of the class as a participant i hate it because you just feel distant from everybody you feel quite exposed because everybody is kind of like sat wow. away from you and whenever if you're going to speak if you're going to suggest something then actually you're, you're quite exposed you're quite isolated in a way because you've got no there's no kind of comfort we don't naturally kind of sit like that it's quite an awkward way to sit shit. you think about from a social interaction you've just so, like again, shit all over my years of training like <laughs> i've never thought of it like that before it's kind of like that makes so much sense now fuck me yeah and then you have there's, there's only one worse than the you which is the what i call the open you uh which is where you basically have people sat in a u shape but without any tables i mean that is just that is awful like when, a like an alcoholics anonymous kind of group <laughs> yeah yeah but in all honesty you, you think about yourself in a social setting let's say you're at home when would you ever just stick a chair in the middle of a room and sit on it yeah yeah you don't do that because it's really awkward. I wouldn't have even I mean, thought that it. would be a training setup. Like, when oh my God, you people are going to take notes, how are they going to take? How are they going to take notes? Like on their lap? Like that would really piss me off. Like, oh well, sometimes I have those like little table things, don't they? But no, I, I see it a lot when people are trying to be you know open and inclusive, and let, let, let's have this lovely, you know, like you say, a very alcoholic anonymous style yeah. style do, lesson. You know, do you know that reminds be... me of um, you know Men in Black, where he's uh, Will Smith is interviewed. Uh, sent for his interview and they put all these people in a row and they're like can you fill this form out and they're all trying to write it on their lap i do can you remember this would like, you hate me if i said i hadn't 
seen that film. You haven't seen Men in Black? I'm not really a film buff, honestly. It's not even a film. You don't have to be a film buff to watch Men in Black. Like, it's just you a- ha- well, you have to watch films, I suppose. But you, don't, watch- you don't watch films, like, ever. So you, haven't, you haven't watched, like, oh, my God. I feel like you haven't lived. I'm, I'm like a massive, my best mate's like this. Sorry, sorry to disappoint. Yeah, I feel like I don't even want to talk to you anymore. I don't know. This is really, I mean, I've watched a few films, obviously, but I'm not really wanting to. Well, I'm, a bit, anyway. I'm a bit of a morning lark, you know. So, I mean, come come 7 p.m., I'm pretty disinterested in most things, to tell you the truth. So, the thought of wow. to start watching a two hour film at seven o'clock is not going to happen, frankly. Wow. I feel, I, I genuinely feel like I'm, I've, I've, been, I've never been so offended in my life. <laughs> Anyway, don't want to so talk to you anymore. Explain, explain the scenario. <laughs> so he basically like it's, it's similar. I don't know if you ever, well, you, not, maybe not, not even like D- Darren Brown does a lot of this stuff where he kind of challenges, yeah. puts people into a situation where he wants them to do not the norm. So basically, this is what they're doing in this interview in the film. It's the same. It's a social experiment. So they put them all in the road, just a chair, and they give them one piece of A4 paper and say, please fill out this form. And they give them a pen. Okay. But there's no table. There's no nothing. So there's people there that are like writing on their knees and they're going through yeah, the yeah. paper and stuff like ripping the paper. And they're all like, oh, I don't know what to do. And Will Smith gets up in this room and the room is white. Like the room is pure white. The floor's white. The chairs are black. He's in like track suits and that. And everyone else is in a suit. So he's standing out around. He's in a really vulnerable position. He looks different. Everywhere else is black and white. He's colourful. Like all the other men in there are white of their their like uh, complexity, and he's he's obviously not. Um, so he's he, he's already extremely vulnerable. And what yeah. I, what I don't think people get when they watch this is they just think it's funny because what he does is he gets up, he goes to this coffee table that's in the middle of the room with no chairs around it, and he drags it to his seat. And it's like, as he drags it a lot, it's a horrible noise. And then he starts filling out the form. And people are like, oh, that's really funny. And it's like, actually, what it is, is that interviewer is watching and they want somebody to do that. They want somebody to think outside the box. They want someone to feel vulnerable and go Mm -hmm. and do something to fix that problem and not be led by the, you know, not, not be a sheep of the room essentially. And Darren Brown does a lot of this stuff. Like there's a, I can't remember what show it is, but I absolutely love Darren Brown. And some of the stuff that he does is like, there's a one experiment that just blew my mind, similar setup. People are in a room they're being asked to, to uh, go into this room to be interviewed for a TV show. And, he needs people that are led by social convention, social pressure. So he's looking yeah. for the opposite of what Will Smith did in that, in that film. He's looking okay. for somebody that will follow. So he doesn't want people that are going to challenge. So basically he has three. James, a- can I just, can, can we take hey, hats off for two seconds? There's somebody ringing my front doorbell and I suspect it's probably one of the children's yeah, friends on. who yeah, have no on. social skills at all. <laughs> oh, sorry. That's okay. Um, right, are we still yeah 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 that's fine um so can you hear me through my yeah 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 i can hear you so okay sorry so, that's fine it's fine don't worry um where was i right so yeah basically he he needs the whole i don't want to give away the show for anyone that, that actually wants to watch it but basically he needs people that are led by social pressure so he wants the opposite of will smith okay. in that film so basically you go into a room there's five people three of them are actors 
or sorry, four of them are actors. Oh. And the and the the person entering the room is who they're targeting is the person that they want to try and get on the show, right? And oh wow! There's the bell that plays in the room, and every time the bell rings, they stand up. And when the bell rings again, they sit down, but they're being asked to fill out a form. So as you can imagine, filling out a form whilst doing that would be really fucking annoying, right? So yeah. the bell goes, and then <laughs> basically what they do is anyone that they bring in the room that doesn't copy the actors um, is removed. They're brought out of the room. Anyone that does copy the actors stays. And gradually they remove hey. the actors. And they've now got a room of five people that have never been told to stand up or sit down when the bell rings, but they've got five people who are not actors that stand up and sit down when the bell rings. And it's just like, and that just, when you said about people in a room at training without any tables or anything, that whole thing just, I was going through my head. Like I need to talk about that. Like there's so many things that you have to think about that. I don't think as a trainer, we're told and, and that's what I mean that that I call it the horseshoe what you called the you I call it the horseshoe like it genuinely was the, how that, that's how I would set up a room um to, to to do training and I never thought of it actually from the point of view of what subliminal kind of messaging am I am I kind of putting across they're sitting down in front of them is this open space where I walk up and down and dominate the room and I'm standing yep. up and you're sitting down and what what image that's given off and i've never thought of it like that until you just said it and now i'm like shit how am i going to set up a room so now i need you to tell me what your favorite (laughs) way of setting up a room is or in your opinion the most effective generally if there is one because i don't Um, have a way to set up a room now because you've just shit all over that (laughs) (laughs) well again it kind of all it depends on context yeah because Actually, you know, the, the, the open you where you're basically just sat like the like the sort of the, the counselling room, if yeah. you like, um, you know, I, I as another aside, I have to do a, you know, a 16 hour first aid course every three years for my outdoor professional qualifications. Um, and actually having that open you shape is the best way. You know, you don't want it on the floor, but actually you're getting up and down all the time. So actually in that context, it's it's a it's the right thing to do now. Um, the other two layouts possibly are what I call theatre style, which is literally rows of chairs. Um, and then you also have classroom, classic classroom, I call it, which is rows, but with the desks as well. So you've got, you've got a lot of options. And again, there's no right or wrong way or favourite, but this is because of my delivery style and the, the, the training style that I do is a combination of boardroom, which is one big table, um, or cabaret, which is lots of little tables. I've only got four people on the course. I'll make a boardroom table that we all sit around. Sorry. Uh, so yeah, so a, a boardroom style, which which works up to about I don't know eight to ten, maybe you can have in a big boardroom, and that's like one big table, not even an elongated U. So everybody kind of feels part of of the group. Um, if you've got a slightly bigger group, then I quite like the cabaret style, which basically you have people split into smaller tables of you know, six to eight people per table. And again, it comes, it comes from a sort of like, um, well, we talked before about psychological safety. You know, if you're asking people to discuss things and talk about stuff, then being in a small group around a small table of six people 
they're much more willing and likely to have a more productive discussion. So, uh, I mean, I think back a couple of years ago, we were doing a case study and the only stipulation, oh, I'll talk about how you seat the people as well in a minute. The only stipulation for who was on the table is that it had to be a mix of flight, deck and cabin crew. Now, okay. if I had you know, an enormous U-shape and we, we were talking about, you know, uh, I, I sort of read the case study. Um, <laughs> I actually read it like a story. There was, oh, sorry, I'm going off on one now. So yeah, there's, um, it, it was quite a tricky case study to actually set the scene um, yeah. without just telling the story. And I sat at home for ages thinking, oh, how can we make this more interactive, engaging? You know, what can we do with this? And I thought, you need to set the scene. And the only way you can do that is to tell the story. So I thought, well, I know what, I'll, I'll just write it as a story. And I so I did. And I actually stuck it inside one of my daughter's nursery rhyme books. So I said, right, story time. And I'd sit on the desk with my knees folded, with my legs crossed like this, with my big story book in front of me. It was a dull grey day when Captain Nigel, not his oh, real name, no way. Was, was driving on the early morning flight to Oslo. As we listened to the shipping <laughs> forecast on Radio 4. <laughs> you read that to your daughter? That is amazing. No, 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 no. I read this to the class. Oh, you know, right. As if, but I had it inside a, a nursery bimes book, you know, but I had all my notes oh, that's inside even better. it. I thought because you meant like you thought, practiced right. it with your daughter and then, but that's even better. <laughs> you took your daughter's nursery book to the, to the training group. And you yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so I sat amazing. there on the desk as if I was doing, you know, listen with mother and I had this big pink nursery rhymes book, but inside, you know, I had this, but I wrote it as like a story. I thought I can't, if I'm going to do it as a story, I may as well make it a funny story. Oh, um, and so we had, we had some of the passengers because it was a flight to Oslo. Uh, we had Christoph and Anna were the passengers on board who were the, the key characters from Frozen. I don't yeah, know if you've watched yeah. Frozen. With, oh, yeah. So you do watch films then? Uh, well frozen like ah gotcha <laughs> <laughs> but yeah but it was quite funny because you'd say you know a christoph and anna and then you'd, you'd you'd kind of see like and this is where you get the engagement from people you know because then you'd have your like your like 50 year old captain just <laughs> the cabin crew who are clearly mums who kind of go are we it just is are we yeah and you, you see this little sort of like light bulb moment you know so um but anyway, so what we, we read the story and then, you know, we, we got to a point where, you know, this particular thing happened and I just put the book down and said, let's just think about that for a moment. You know, what would you actually do in that situation? You know, and if, if I opened that question to a, you know, a big U shape, it would be quite stilted. But what I did, I said to them, right, in your tables, discuss, you know, this has happened. This is what you've seen. This is the only information that you've got at the moment. What would you actually do? Is there a right answer to this? Bam, that's it. The whole room is alive because they kind of feel safe talking in their little group. It's like yeah. a safe space, if yeah. you see what I mean, uh -huh. because they're not talking in front of everybody. They're just having a discussion, you know, in their in their particular teams. Um, and then so then we'd ask, so that's interesting. So you do this and you do this. And then we carry on with a little bit more of the story. And then we'd say, OK, let's just stop again. So what would you do this time? So the first bit was like cabin crew, what would you do? And then flight deck, what would you do? You know, this is the situation, what would you actually do? Again, bam, the room is alive. And I think, you know, that that kind of, I know you said they, they, they hate the round tables, but, you know, actually having that little small group. And I think it, because it gave them a bit of a safe environmental capture as well, if we talk about that briefly, because every morning as flight crew and cabin crew, we'd sit around a table in the crew room and do a, a, a pre-flight, briefing a crew briefing so it's kind of a 
an environment that they're comfortable in. They're comfortable to talk about things because it's something that they do every day. So basically you're putting them back around a briefing table. Effectively, that actually works quite nicely. Um, And the other thing, you know, I said, I said before, you know, um, you know, the only stipulation was that you had to have some flight crew and you had to have some cabin crew. Um, But, you know, equally, I also, you know, I, I often find trainers, you know, said, oh, yeah, well, you know, you walk into the room, everybody sits down and said, right, OK, uh, right, let's mix you all up a little bit. Come on, let, let's get you sat over here. Let it's, You know, it's good to kind of like not sit by your friends all the time. Like, oh, you know, as, as, a, as a participant, OK, if I walk into a classroom, I want to sit by my friends. It might be someone that I've just met recently or it might be actually somebody that I've come on the course with. But you know what, from a, from a personal preference, I want to sit by somebody that I know because that makes me feel more comfortable. And, you know, if some quiet instructor then comes in and says, right, you move, you move, you move, I want you to, again, that, that instructor is now taking ownership of that class. And that's, that's, not, that's not fair. It's not his class. He's there to facilitate and you get the best out of these people. This so frankly, amazing. sit where they like. Just sit where you like. This is amazing. Somewhere where you feel psychologically safe to participate and to be part of my class. Everything you say will be validated and you will be sitting in a position that is comfortable with people that you feel comfortable with because it's not my class, it's your class. I wish I had that applaud button. Like <laughs> we wasted we wasted so much time talking about how crap it was when you lost your job, which was horrible. And I'm glad we spoke about it, but, but I did not know there was this much gold sitting right underneath those stories this is just amazing i'm gutted that we wasted so much time talking about all that crap when there's this like game-changing information for me personally like like personally i love i love a round table i love it like fear but i would i would treat a round table more like a workshop like like a training session that's how i've looked at it in my head but just the stuff you're saying there like you know you know i've always tried to own the room like now that now that the, everything you're talking about, I just think back to all the training I've done, and I just think shit. All those little things I've done where I was only well, the room. I, I, Go on. I, I mean, I think to add balance, it depends on what you're doing. Now, if you're in an instructional role, a transfer of information role, okay, transfer of knowledge role. Um, so, for example, when our technical trainers are teaching our pilots on their type rating you know how how the dash eight works you know what does this button do what does that button do then actually yes do you know what you do own the room and you need to own the room because you need them to have that knowledge they don't need to feel psychologically safe to tell their stories and to contribute and all that kind of thing because it is a very objective you know you need to know this information and so i need to have you in a sat in such a way and positions in such a way that i can get that information to you in the most effective manner but you know, and, and this is why, um, you know, from a, if, if we look at technical training versus CRM, very different style of training, because we're not, it's not a knowledge transfer. Actually, it's a facilitative discussion. And so you need to then have that psychological safety and you need to give ownership to the room. It is their class. And I say this quite a lot, you know, when I'm asking for, you know, things to put on the board or to put on, a, you know, I say to them, look, there's no right answer to this, by the way. This is, this is your experience. I'm, I'm not here to tell you that this is what you should be doing and this is how you should be doing it. I said, I'm asking you because it is your class. So if you tell me that you can sustain this level of attention for 10 minutes, that's fine. I'm not going to tell you that you can't. 
Somebody else might say they can do it for 20 minutes. Okay, that's fine. That, that's your contribution. I'm asking for your contribution. How do you respond to this kind of thing? And, and that's the big difference, actually. And you need, I think you need quite a lot of confidence to not have the right answer because quite often there isn't a right answer. Mm. I'm, I've, I've, I've got to bring this to an end because I need to go. Oh. But I am so gutted because... I'm just, I love just having these emergent conversations where this is the first time that, that actually I've gone, oh, shit, we've wasted so much time talking about that. So I apologize to any listeners. No, I apologize okay. to you because, oh my God, there's so, I need, uh, we're going to have to get you back on because this, uh, this that, <laughs> every, the, 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 the amount of training I've had to be a trainer, the amount of training I've delivered, and there's so much stuff that you've just said that I don't think we've, we've ever touched on. I don't think I've ever touched on, but now you've said it, my brain has just gone, this is so obvious. Why have I not thought about this? And I think maybe in, in some aspects, I'd probably do a little bit of it, but I've never thought of it like that. Like, you know, what is the, what is the kind of impact I'm having on, on some of those things? And, and actually, yeah. Wow. Well, thank you. Helen. I think, I think that's the difference as well. I mean, I've, you, a lot of train the trainer courses focus a lot on, what to teach mm. actually on the thing that you have to teach and you know one of the things that I wanted to introduce to you know the, the when I do a train the trainer course just to have that I don't know that different slant the thing that makes it unique is it's very much uh not about what to teach but how to teach it mm. and to make it effective teaching and so that's kind of you know because that's because that's what I've always prided myself on. You know, I'm so sick to death of being handed 56 PowerPoint slides and saying, oh, go and teach this. And what, teach what? <laughs> you haven't told me anything to teach here. All you've given me is a, a karaoke to do. Um, so, you know, and so, you know, I've, I've, put, I've tried to make it so much more engaging. Mm. Um, and I guess a lot of this, I mean, I haven't been taught a lot of this stuff either, to be fair. I've just kind of like picked it up as I've gone along. I mean, the whole cabaret thing about the room layout was purely by chance in that, you know, my class of what usually is like 16 to 18 people, I was suddenly informed because of something that had happened at some point, at some point along the line, was now going to be 32 people. Mm. And with the best will in the world, my little classroom of what, room 112 in the Flyby Academy was not going to accommodate 32 people. Even in theatre style, it was not going to accommodate 32 people. So I spoke to the front desk and I said, look, have you got a, a bigger room? And they said, oh, you can have room 101. <laughs> no pun, it was actually called, which is our massive, great, like conference suite type thing. And this thing is like an acre. <laughs> it's got different time zones in it. It's so massive. <laughs> Um, and I thought, oh my God, that's going to be a bit vast. Anyway, I kind of went in there to have a look at it, thinking, how the heck am I going to present in here? Because it's just too big. You don't have that safe space. And it was already laid out in kind of what I now call cabaret style, in, in tables of six people per table. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, this might work, actually. This, this actually, this actually, for a room this size, for this amount of people, this actually might work quite nicely. Do you know what? It was a, it was a revelation. It was an absolute game changer. And from that moment on, I thought, okay, I'm going to remember this. Actually, this, yeah. this really works. Yeah. And so that's kind of one of the things that I've, I've just learned by doing. So no, I've never been taught it either. But actually, I sort of thought about it a lot I kind of analyzed these things quite a lot and thought actually do you know what from a psychological perspective and there's so much talk now about psychological safety that you've kind of incorporated that into into how I teach as well you know yeah. so validation and having people feeling comfortable is the best way to do it well I'm glad I asked you about psychological safety and your training environments because that was probably just 
mind blown. Thank you very much, Helen. And I'm really gutted that okay. I've got I've got a go, if I'm honest. Oh well rugby calls. Yeah, let's let's be let's be honest. Yeah, Some about I can, priorities. I can feel the wives' eyes burning from me down step wives. I've only sorry. got one. The wife's I'm eyes sorry. burning at me saying, We need to go, James. I can feel it. She she's right. She won't be like that actually. But um but yeah, I so Helen, you know, if people want to get get work with you or get hold of you. How do they do that? Yeah, do and do? Uh, and if I want to work with you, how do I get hold of you? Right. Okay. Uh, so yeah. So since losing my job at Flyby, um, I have set up my own independent consultancy. Um, uh, it's called Greenwing Consultants. Um, I haven't quite got the website up and running yet. I'm not doing very <laughs> well. Uh, so I do. Uh, if I look at all aspects of human factors training, uh, particularly refreshing training to actually make it. You know, more engaging uh, yep. for for the staff, make it bespoke as well to the to the particular organisation. Um, take it from you know, well that's quite interesting, Helen, but what's the point? To actually, oh, actually that's really useful. Um, but also within aviation as well, I, do, I you know I'm available to to actually do the CRM training, it, initials, recurrence, um, train the trainer as well if you you know want to learn how to teach this stuff. Be an then awesome trainer. Do a train the trainer course. Um, and I'm an examiner as well, actually. I can actually examine CRM trainers within aviation as well. Cool. So, uh, so I could, if people need to be reassessed, then I can do the examining side of things as well. Well, thank you very much, Helen. Um, and okay. how, how, can I just, is the best place to get hold of you on LinkedIn or email or? Yeah, let's say LinkedIn at the moment, uh, only because the email address that I'm using is kind of like my, my personal email address. So I'd kind of rather not get that yeah, out. Yeah. Public tied up form. to your website. Yeah, um, I've been there. Yes, if you have a look at me, uh, Helen Heenan, um, and I'm a member of the Royal Owen. We'll link okay. it in the. In the uh, it's in Helen the... Heenan, um, and I'm a member of the Royal Owen Autopical Society. So it's Helen Heenan, and you can find me there. But yeah, cool. you know, I'd be more than happy to do whatever I can because I, I do, I am passionate about it. And, yeah, you know, I want people to do the participants engage in and love but also you as a trainer can just walk in there with a smile on your face saying oh, i can't wait to deliver this yeah no that's awesome that is awesome thank you very much helen i'll put the links to your link oh not at all. oh my god it's five to one how did that happen i know tell me about it Okay, peeps, hope you enjoyed that conversation like i said there's going to be a part two and if you did enjoy it if you're on YouTube, hit the like button. If you're on iTunes, give us a rate and review, please. That really, really helps us get spread out into other people's ear holes. And if you really liked it, give us a share to like one person. Think of one person that you think will really benefit from this conversation and send it to them. But if you're going to do anything, just make sure you stick for episode two of this conversation. Part two of my chat with Helen Heenan will be coming up in a couple of weeks. So make sure you check that out. Don't forget reflection, which would be a short reflection because I don't want to give too much away for the next one. I'm going to keep it nice and short and sharp. Um, but there'll be a reflection out in a couple of days for this episode. Don't forget to check out Paradigm Human Performance's HSE subscription service and all their webinar, the Learning Organization webinar. Don't forget to check out Project Millennium. If you want to try it for free, then let me know. You can try one of our calls. Come along, see, see what it's really like. Is it as good as what James makes out? Yes, it is. Come and try that for free. DM me, DM Colin Nottage, or email us. All the details in the description below. Without further ado, thank you very much for listening. I love you all. Catch you later. Safe. Uh, pop.
The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of the companies. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are examples only based on limited and dated open source information and should not be utilised in real life as the only solution available. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the companies. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic or otherwise, without prior written permission from James McPherson.